Mmm. Waves of pepperoni just wafting in. What, what do you got it's there, a beautiful Franklin? day. It is a there? beautiful day. I have the ultimate pepperoni pizza from Domino's. Light sauce, well done. That is something everyone overlooks. You can choose how you want it cooked. Always go with the well done. Perfectly, perfectly put are together. Gonna, are you going to share any of that? No, it's pretty big not pizza. At not at uh, all. It's pretty selfish of you. Renzel, no pizza from uh, Franklin this week. He's going to hoard it all for himself. That's a tough gig. I, I do. I, I don't like agreeing with Franklin, but I do got to agree with the well done. Although I would go with thin crust, extra sauce, well done. As a former Domino's employee, I know what I'm talking about. Oh wow! I'm a former Domino's employee too in college. Wow! Yeah. I would have thought so, they would have taught y'all better workplace it's, it's, skills. It's amazing the company survives. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We Revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, after nearly 40 years siesta, the Equal Rights Amendment is potentially making a comeback and could put large brands in the middle of an unexpected and potentially unpleasant conversation. It's Labor Day weekend again, and we'll discuss the state of the American labor movement and what the next few years could look like for operators. And we'll examine this week's high-profile election results, especially here in Florida, where the governor's race could be a dress rehearsal for the presidential election in 2020. We'll talk about those stories and then wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Okay, guys, another interesting week in our little corner of the world. Uh, But let's begin the show by going a little retro. Uh, This week in the office, we've been talking about an issue that's been around for maybe 40 years and it's kind of made a little resurgence. Almost like 100 years. Well, yeah. Yeah. 1921, I think it was introduced. I think first three, time. but we can go to the we, we can go, go to the videotape on that one. Yes. It was slightly before me, if that's even possible. That's <laughs> just a year or two. But it's, uh, it's the Equal Rights Amendment, and it's, uh, it's kind of making a comeback. Franklin, why are we talking about the ERA? Well, we had a rally this week in Richmond, Virginia, for the ERA. Um, and that is because, as folks will remember, the off-cycle elections in Virginia created basically an even split, almost an even split, in both legislative houses in Virginia. So um, Democrats, I think it's a one-seat majority in the Senate, is that right? Yeah. And then Republicans have a one-seat majority in the House. Right. So Virginia could be the last state some would argue the last state needed to actually ratify this amendment to the Constitution has been hanging around out there for decades. They need three quarters of the states. They, Illinois became the 37th state this year to ratify the ERA. The process was started in 1972, I believe. Um, and so now they're one state away, and Virginia looks like the state they may be targeted. So there's two pieces to this conversation. There's kind of a legal piece, and then there's the public affairs conversation. And on the legal front, first off, it's unclear if Virginia ratifies, if actually it would be go into the U.S. Constitution. Because the, 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 the deadlines for this have elapsed two or three decades ago, and so legal scholars are, are, are trying to determine whether those deadlines mean anything or are they easily pliable? Or- that, that shot clock has never been tested in constitutionality. It could be tested. Also, five states that have ratified the ERA have since rescinded their ratification vote. 
it's unclear if they can actually do that or not. So legal challenge, potentially, yeah. Yeah, but if Virginia votes to ratify the ERA, we're going to have a big national conversation about all these issues. Um, And that is going to provide potentially a threat, maybe an opportunity for companies to kind of enter into this conversation. And that's the public affairs piece. Joe Renzel, what's your take? I just think, uh, you know, like you talked about Virginia, I think there's also probably a handful of other states that, that maybe come up as well, you know, in terms of potential flips when we look at the, the electoral, the uh, political map coming into the next cycle. You know, we talk about maybe New Mexico, maybe Missouri. You never know, but I think the point Franco was making earlier about, you know, Virginia being top of the list, my only point is that there's, there's a couple other states that might shift as well that haven't voted to ratify it. So I think generally speaking, the idea here is that you'll you'll see a narrative around this. Uh, you're seeing it now with the Virginia situation, but you could see it spread into 2019 as folks try and advance the ball on on getting that extra that last state to ratify and and there's certainly an implication for businesses uh, you know as they react to it and as they talk about it yeah so so let's cut to the chase so why would this matter to the business community why does this matter to operators why does this matter to restaurant and retail companies franklin so yet again i'll, I'll tackle it in two ways legal and public affairs but i'm gonna start with public affairs because i think that's the more important National conversation on this issue, if Virginia or another state that he gets hit by a blue wave in January votes to ratify it, we're going to have a huge conversation and a huge potential opportunity. We think back to 84 Lumber that ran the immigration ad around the Super Bowl, and we've seen Airbnb did an immigration ad. We've seen other companies, Nike, just did this big rollout around pay equity and leveling pay equity within the company. We've seen a lot of companies tag Burger King, a net neutrality, big, did, did a big rollout marketing campaign. So we've seen companies take advantage of political issues. If you're a leader in this space, if you're a leader in pay equity, if you can walk the walk, then this may be an opportunity to get involved in this political conversation. You may want to run ads in Virginia and some other states and kind of lead on this issue. And what I would say, regardless of whether any legal constitutional restrictions, if you think in anybody, if you think anybody in this kind of political environment, the year of the woman, all that's happened in the last 18 months, even Mitch McConnell is not going to stand in the schoolhouse door on an effort in Congress to extend the deadline on the ERA. It's no coincidence that, you know, we haven't had this conversation really in a meaningful way in three decades, and now we're having this conversation again. Yeah. Yeah. So this conversation is going to come very, could potentially come very quickly. Brands need to not be caught flat-footed here and understand this is happening around them. And, you know, A, be prepared for a conversation to come their way. But to your point, Franklin, how do you you potentially get out in front of it and take advantage of it? So real quick, we should touch on just kind of the legal piece. I I think a lot of uh, folks, actually, I read a New Republic article where they said they were advocating for the ERA. And they were saying that we have islands of equality in a sea of inequality. Um, And certainly within the employment law space, I think a lot of the things the ERA would do are already there. You know, you think about um, Equal Pay Act and you think about a lot of the protections that are in place. You think about how the EEOC kind of functions in today's world and uh, probably those protections are in place. Many would argue that the 14th Amendment has been, the interpretation has been expanded to already protect women's rights constitutionally. But 
there, there, there could be some nuances in the legal space where the ERA kind of creates ripples or, or reinterprets existing statutes. To the New Republic's point, there are gaps in those explicit protections written into law related to gender. And so there could be some new challenges for employers. Um, it's hard to predict what the unintended consequences would be of of actually putting the ERA into law. And so, you know, that is that is something everyone else should be thinking about. Joe Renzel, you get the last word. Yeah, just, I mean, revisiting the kind of public relations aspect of it and not to pick out our, on our friends at Nike, but, you know, you look at that company and they, you know, went through some, you know, pretty negative uh, reviews, if you will. And then they've, um, you know, worked internally and they've done this rollout and, and given a lot of deserving folks raises. Um, and that's important. Uh, but should a, a brand like that choose to engage, there still could be the potential for for backlash and, and maybe, you know, reopening that wound. And so companies need to kind of think through that. And, you know, I think Franklin talked about it earlier, but they just need to think through, um, you know, both the positive uh, part of engaging on an issue like this that, you know, really can can present a strong argument. And, and then the negatives in terms of if you if you have your house in order. Um, you know, what can you really um, get on your soapbox to really talk about from a brand perspective? And, and so the bottom line is there could be a big and another big national conversation on women and women empowerment coming to brands very soon. All right, guys. Well, it's Labor Day weekend, the traditional end of summer. And in addition to backyard barbecues and, oh, by the way, the kickoff of college football season, on Monday we'll see across the country, I'm sure, Labor Day marches in D.C., Joe Renzel, probably the big Labor Day parade downtown. So, Franklin, for me, it, it poses the, the obvious question. You know, we talk about a lot on this pod. It's Labor Day, the labor movement. We talk a lot about it. What's the, what's the state of play? What is the state of organized labor right now? They're in a tough spot. And they, they have been for some years. I mean, they've, you know, recent win in the ballot in Missouri right to work. But overall, the, the tide has been going out here for some years. And, you know, at least two more years of a Trump administration is going to continue to um, make that difficult at the agency level. The U.S. Supreme Court clearly is going to be a tough battleground for them for who knows how long, potentially decades. And you know, without any contextual changes in the way that they can organize into a union, you know, if the status quo, how unions operate and organize stays, you can only expect that membership's going to continue to decline. It's hard to see how they're going to kind of turn the page. And so, you know, they've talked about alternative models, but we haven't really seen one catch fire yet, and they continue to test those. So, they're in a rough spot right now. I, I think they probably will turn the corner, but it's hard to see what that looks like at this point. Joe Renzo, what's the, what's your take from the from the DC bubble? Yeah, I mean, I think they've. I agree with Coley, but I also would would point out that I think they've uh, on some of the policy agenda items. I think they've advanced the ball around the narrative. Uh, so you know, obviously, that's advantaged by the Me Too movement and. Uh, you know, the equality dialogue and, and, and wealth inequality and all those things that are kind of in the narrative, in the public narrative. Um, 
but it hasn't necessarily translated into legislative achievements, you know, and I think that's partially to do with, you know, this year, this cycle being a, an election cycle at the state legislative level. But, you know, I think we were all kind of surprised that, you know, they made headroads certainly in places like New Jersey where, you know, they got the Democratic governor in place and, and, and no longer had the backstop of Chris Christie from a, from a business policy perspective. Um, but they really didn't uh, advance the ball too far in a lot of other states. You had Massachusetts and we've got some ballot initiatives coming up in November, but it'll be interesting to see how the public reacts. Um, but I think they, they, they have the narrative and I think that will advantage them uh, from a policy perspective into 2019, but perhaps they didn't get as far as they wanted in 2018. But depending on how this election turns out in a few months, th things could look very different for their agenda in Washington, D.C., correct? Right, in Washington, D.C. and across the country, too. And, uh, you know, I think that's where, if they're smart, they're taking advantage of, again, that, that national dialogue around equality and, and issue sets, um, you know, and, and putting it into legislative progress in the next cycle in states that they potentially win with this potential blue wave that we've talked about. They've had some short-term successes, and I think we're going to continue to see that, you know, winning on minimum wage paid leave. Certainly, they've changed the dialogue around those issues. But the fundamental kind of building blocks, how they organize, how they – the trade union model has major problems. Now, the silver lining is this, that millennials and younger people that will inherit, you know, the political system are much more friendly to not only the message of kind of the labor movement, but are, are much more accepting and open to um, unions. You know, the public opinion polls show this and, and their policy. So, but it's not any different from young people in the '90s or young people in the 1970s. Young people are always much more idealistic. You know, they have no tangible connection to unions. They haven't seen it play out, and it just seems like after 20 years in the workforce, they have a very different opinion of these kinds of things than they did prior. I'm trying to close out with the silver lining for the unions. Well, but. I think this is the silver lining, from, from my <laughs> perspective, is, and you you alluded to it, is you know. I've said it a million times, you know, they're, they're, they're losing the, the legislation, they're losing on regulation, they're losing on litigation, but they're winning the conversation. Right. And, you know, the country is, is, is you know, $15 minimum wage is mainstream. We got Republican in the White House and in the Senate talking about paid leave. They're, they're winning on a lot of kind of the softer conversational stuff that is not, that's not. The uh, structural organizing. But, but it's not translating into union dues and union members. So they're they're losing in the big picture, but there are some some rays of, of, of sunshine for them. They are they have certainly moved the needle on the national conversation on issues important to their agenda. Well and so I guess I'm kinda of wrap it up with this. If they continue to win hearts and minds, then the structural changes they may be able to make structural changes to the trade union model and move to more of kind of a nonprofit or a service model where they can bring those people in as members. It's not gonna look like your traditional union. It may look like an advocacy organization or a special interest group, but if they if they keep the hearts and minds, they may be able to figure out a way to kind of organize them into some sort of union nonprofit hybrid. And that is the silver lining in my mind. Like, like traditional businesses, they're a traditional organization that has to figure out a way to compete and survive the new economy, the modern economy. To date, it doesn't seem like they're as embracing that as quickly as their counterparts in the business community are, but it remains to be seen whether they can kind of modernize themselves for the, for the next 50 years. All right, so another set of elections this week. We've been having kind of primaries throughout the summer. And this week, 
primary voters, most notably in Arizona and here in Florida, went to the polls and had kind of two different results. One was in Arizona, the establishment candidates won, and so the general election out there for their Senate seat will be establishment versus establishment. But Franklin, here in Florida... Florida will not be denied the headlines. Yeah. Will not be denied. We, we outdid ourselves once again. Absolutely. And um, it could have implications not only here in the state this year, but on the national scene for 2020. Why, why was... The Florida, the outcome, the results of the Florida governor's race, potentially a litmus test for the presidential race in 2020. So it's being talked about, and, and this is certainly the case, as kind of a litmus test for should Democrats run a progressive candidate, a candidate to the left, or a moderate candidate in 2020 versus Donald Trump. And the argument that Bernie Sanders supporters and others and the progressive left of the of the Democratic Party have argued is that if they had a candidate that fired up the base like Trump did on the Democrat ticket, then they would have won. And Hillary Clinton just did not excite the base, and therefore Trump was able to walk into office. And to the dismay of some of the party officials, the outsider candidate, Andrew Gillum, who for a long time was ignored. In fact, most of the attack ads from the other Democrat candidates for governor focused on kind of the top three, which was Green, Levine, and Graham, and Gillum kind of snuck in. So we are now going to Green, have- Levine and Graham sounds like a law firm. It really does. Um, so we are going to have a face-off between kind of a mini Trump, DeSantis, and now a mini Bernie. A mini you know, Bernie. he's for $15 an hour minimum wage, Medic Medicare for all, you know, which is code word for universal health care. Um, he is for all the kind of left of center. He checks every box. So we're going to have Bernie versus Trump here in the state of Florida. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's put up time or shut up time for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. You said this is the race you want. Well, here you are, national stage. You've got the you largest know. battleground state in the country. Went for Trump, went for Obama twice, went for Bush. So, you know, this is it. Yeah, my my electing electoral prognostication skills have gone to hell in the last couple of years. I can't predict any outcomes anymore. It's so convoluted. But you know, I, I there's one one problem I have with the, the progressive wing saying you know Hillary wasn't progressive enough and blah 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 is that we forget and it's inconvenient to a lot of folks. But she won by three million votes, not. 600,000 like Al Gore won by in the popular, 3 million votes. So, you know, the establishment is still there and the establishment still had the votes to carry the day. So I think this is, is going to be very interesting on how this plays out. You've got the most liberal Democratic candidate who is running on the $15 wage, the Medicaid for all, the entire Bernie platform. Bernie came in here toward the end of the race. Um, and, 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 and got his guy through. I still think it's an uphill battle in Florida for it was going to be an uphill battle no matter who the Democratic nominee was, even in a blue wave year. I think this this is either going to be a colossal wipeout or the progressive team is right. And this is what it takes to get that Obama coalition back again and get up the top. Joe Renzo. Yeah, I mean, I think sure, sure enough, the political class up here in D.C. is is all eyes on Florida, you know, as you guys love it down there. Um, but it is true. I mean, it's a bellwether state. You know, it's going to be the litmus test like you guys were just talking about. And as you were alluding to, the question at the end of the day is, you know, does that change the, the Democrat Party politics to 
be 100% behind on Elizabeth Warren in 2020 versus Trump? Can she win nationally, regardless of what happens in Florida? You know, I mean, those are the type of questions that the party's going to have to ask himself, themselves. And, you know, Florida is important. It's, it's a centerpiece, obviously huge market state, a lot of votes. Um, but this, this whole dynamic of, you know, little Bernie's versus little Trump's is going to play out across the country, both in the midterms and, you know, leading into the next election cycle. The, the, the one thing I find interesting about it is that, and I don't know how Democrats can consistently tie themselves up in knots like this, but they have this progressive young agenda that appeals to young people, and they put Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as the face of it. Right here in Florida, we've got a young, vibrant, youthful, exuberant candidate carrying that youthful, exuberant agenda. So maybe that's a different formula this time around. Franklin? Yeah, we'll see. And we've got a similar dynamic in Georgia to watch as well. So, you know, Georgia is obviously more Republican than Florida. Florida's a little purpler, so it is considered more in play. But we're going to watch the same dynamic play out in Georgia. So both our states we're going to be able to watch. Um, the last thing I would say is that Gillum did not get a lot of attention from his Democrat rivals in the primary. So a lot of potential issues didn't get really talked about. And there's a potential hanging FBI investigation and that has not been vetted. That could take him down regardless of the politics. But even if it does, we'll still have Georgia to look at as kind of a, a 2020 litmus test as well. If the if the Democrat candidate does there, which is also kind of a base campaign, then yet again, you could see people kind of going down this, this path and really doubling down on the base politics as Donald Trump has done effectively on the, on the right side. Well, it should be interesting. You know, Florida has a, has a, has a well-deserved long history of really counting every vote properly. So in a close election, that, that could be fun again this November. So we look forward to that. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go across the country and update you on the political and regulatory and legislative happenings for the week. Usually we start with wages, but this week we're going to shake it up just a little bit. Uh, Franklin, something happened in California with our good friends at In-N-Out Burger and political yes. giving. And, and I lobbied hard to have this as our opening meal, but we couldn't figure out the logistics of shipping in We don't have In-N-Out burgers. Burger here on the East Coast. So. Come to us, please. So what happened? So uh, In-N-Out Burger had a boycott called against it from the California Democratic Party chair for donations to the Republican Party and to other Republican officials. Uh, For the record, In-N-Out has given to both Republicans and Democrats. It looks as if this is maybe backfiring a little bit. I I think people's loyalty is a little stronger with In-N-Out Burger than it is with the Democratic Party chairman. um, And the the party even backtracked quickly. Pretty quickly. The chairman got out there ahead of everybody. And the repubs were dancing in the streets. They all ordered in and out burgers to their offices and, you know, were posting pictures on Twitter of them munching down. What's what's the lesson here? The lesson here is you just got to be careful in this day and age. You know, any political giving, any political engagement can kind of find you. Instant judgment, instant news. Political football pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the takeaway from this. And we're not episode. saying the company should not get engaged and be active politically. We're not. We're just saying you got to remember the modern lens that all this is looked through. You got to be aware of and be prepared to kind of that New York Times test to be able to speak to you know why you're doing it and and explain your reasoning. 
All right, so let's go back up to the uh, top of the batting order and back to wages, and we'll start up in the D.C. bubble with our bubble boy himself. Mr. Renzo, what happened at the Labor Department this week? Yeah, you had the wage and hour division uh, basically starting the process for the long-awaited update to overtime pay rules. Uh, so they're going to do a bunch of public listening sessions throughout the country over the next several months, gather some input, propose some rules, you know, the comment period, you know, the process is starting. All right, so let's go back, Franklin, to California. Some more news in California this week. Yeah, the Starbucks case that we've been talking about for a while now, um, you know, uh, workers were clocking out, and then they had to upload the data. So all those kind of seconds piled up together resulted in millions of dollars that Starbucks had to pay and back pay to workers. Starbucks appealed to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court refused to take up the case. That means that decision stands. It becomes precedent in the state of California. Other brands need to look at their practices and make sure they're not doing the same thing. And back on this side of the world, Miami Beach, what happened in Florida this week? Yeah, a couple things actually in Florida. First, um, the state Supreme Court will hear the city's case, they raised their minimum wage in violation of the state preemption on municipalities acting on minimum wage. And they are appealing to now the state Supreme Court to argue that that preemption is unconstitutional. So that will be one to closely watch. Back in the middle part of the state, after months and months and months of continuous uh, contentious negotiations. Disney has struck a deal with labor unions, and they will be raising the pay for union workers to $15 an hour by 2021. So it's important, hospitality, tourism sector, there's a new marker in the wage, you know, in this upward momentum for raising wages, and, and the, the wage market just got more expensive in, in Florida, for sure. It's, it's worth noting, too, that Disney announced uh, a couple months ago that they were going to raise the wage to non-union workers to $15 an hour. So now they're just the union contract's just catching up with a, an already made announcement. And Joe, to round out the, the wages section, you know, I, I know um, Franklin's no longer working on the Kid Rock campaign up in Michigan, but not right now. Things are still not exciting. right now. Things are still exciting up there. So what, what happened in, in Michigan? What's happening in Michigan right now? Yeah, they're sorry to be without his services up there. But on the wage front, we're, uh, we're waiting on a Supreme Court uh, decision whether to reject or accept an appeal by the business-backed group, uh, Michigan Opportunity, that's trying to say that the minimum wage ballot initiative is written incorrectly and they're you know creating a legal challenge. Uh, so far, they've lost at the lower courts. Uh, they're looking to appeal to the Supreme Court. Should get a decision soon whether or not they do that. If the Supreme Court rejects that, then it will go on the ballot. Uh, if they accept that appeal, the court proceedings would, would still move forward. Keep in mind, the legislature could still choose to pass a law that would replace the initiative. Um, but, you know, to date, Senate leadership has said, look, you know, we might have the votes to do something, but we don't think it's in the House. So the House has to go first. And so far that hasn't happened. And, you know, the calendar continues to shrink on them. So we'll, we'll keep watching it, but uh, should expect a decision later today. Good. And, and, and Joe, let's stay with you, uh, switching gears to paid leave. Uh, some big news out of Microsoft this week. What uh, what happened to Microsoft? Yeah, this was interesting. You know, in the in the in the theory, the theme of kind of companies leading the way on some of this stuff. Uh, Microsoft has basically announced a new policy that requires all of its suppliers and contractors, those that have more than fifty employees, uh, that they got to provide paid leave to those workers. Um, you know, some some minutia in there. They they say you know the workers that are assigned to Microsoft jobs. Um, must get paid leave, but it's pretty extensive. They've expanded this policy. They've had it since 2015, but they've expanded it from 
15 days per year to 12 weeks of paid leave capped at $1,000 a week, which is very similar to the law passed in Washington State, which is Microsoft's home state. Um, so they're really, you know, from a corporate perspective, kind of taking that policy and making it nationwide, at least as it relates to their business. I do want to say this is a big deal. This, um, is a, this is a new marker in the paid leave market. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of companies implement paid leave practices. We have not seen a lot of big companies yet require contractors and suppliers. So, as you say, it's a new marker, really big deal. Well, and we talked a lot about, you know, act, you know, the activist groups pressuring suppliers, pressuring people through the supply chain. Here's the the, the, the brand itself holding. Yeah, the supply chain and accountable. The supply chain accountable. Yeah. So that's uh, it's an important it's an important inflection point. So. Uh, even though it is the day before Labor Day as we record this, you know, usually there's nothing going on in the world. This may be the longest legislative scorecard ever. Franklin, there's a bucket of stuff I mean, in the labor world this week. So I'm, I'm going to take some deep, like, scuba breaths here. and, and we'll, you fan keep, you, we'll fan you yeah. with palm leaf, keep you going. But a lot, lot happened in the labor world. Yeah, so let's, let's start back in California, popular place, um, with a... EOC lawsuit filed against Burgers and Beer. What a great name for a restaurant. Burgers and Beer. I mean, keep it simple. Even I can get that. Um, And so the EOC is arguing that uh, Burgers and Beer has discriminated against male applicants. And they're saying that 90% of uh, the servers in this restaurant chain are female. And uh, that, that Burgers and Beer has a practice of routinely rejecting male applicants. We can see how a ruling like this could apply to a lot of other chains. Um, so it's one that we will certainly be watching and, and following. Um, NLRB, President Trump has renominated uh, Mr. Pierce, Mark Gaston Pierce, for a new five-year term in the National Ra- Labor Relations Board. This is over the very loud objections of the business community and conservative think tanks. Pierce was former chairman of the board. He has been an architect of most of the Obama-era policies. You know, the so, word. So why does the president do it? The word within the bubble is this is a trade-off to get some nominations through for other positions at DOL and some other agencies. So he will still face a tough fight getting through um, uh, nomination in the congressional committees. So we will see how that plays out. Still sticking with the NLRB. NLRB ruled in favor of a Fight for 15 group, the Michigan Workers Organizing Committee. They were organizing workers and talking with workers in a Burger King parking lot. Um, in Michigan, back in Michigan. In Michigan, and you know the BK franchisee had a no solicitation policy and said, hey, you can't be on my property talking to my employees. We don't allow that. You know, This is why you have no solicitation policies. NLRB essentially... Um, decided that that no solicitation policy only was applicable within the four walls. So union organizers could talk to his workers out on the on the street or in the alleyway or in the parking lot. So that is an important development uh, that other folks that are targets of Fight for 15 should be paying attention to. What are we going next? I mean, it's, it's, it's a never-ending. Yeah. Never-ending bucket. So... Um, let's go to the Labor Department. The department has announced a new Office of Compliance Initiatives. Essentially, this will help businesses comply with wage, safety, benefit law. You know, this is... Uh, this is one of the Democrats are just going crazy and attacking. It's just kind of, 
you know, lipstick. They're not really going to do anything. It's it's more hand-holding than, than punitive and fines. And the so Democrats forth. and the Obama administration definitely were focused on enforcement. We well, This is common, and we see this amongst Republican administrations. They're often focused on compliance, and that's what we, we have here. They're rolling out a new a new office focused on that. Um, Labor Department also released an opinion letter which establishes that, you know, companies that have voluntary wellness programs, that you do not have to pay employees while for the hours they are working out at the gym or yeah, you provide getting a, gym, a massage a gym membership, or you whatever have to else. pay them for going to the gym, essentially. And so the Labor Department uh, put out an opinion later essentially stating that and clarifying that. All right, um, back to California, big, big news in California. Yeah, so uh, California General Assembly passed a bill that requires employers with 50 or more workers to maintain internal records of employee complaints involving sexual harassment for a minimum of five years. It's kind of a kind of a big deal in terms of record keeping requirements, um, even maybe a bigger deal. And this is a big deal. And I'm not sure this will hold up at the end of the day and under a court challenge, but we will see. A bill passed both chambers that uh, mandates that publicly traded companies have to provide- That are based in the state. That are based in the state, that they have to provide um, one seat to a female on their board of directors. And you know if they have five or more directors, they have to provide two or three seats, kind of depending on the, on the size, sliding scale essentially. I mean, they're essentially mandating the gender makeup of your board of directors. Yeah, and so this is going to the governor's desk for consideration. I, it's hard to imagine this survives a court challenge, but I, you know, anyway, we'll see. Um, it's something that obviously publicly traded companies being need to be paying attention to. And a couple things going on outside of the labor department, but in the labor space with some other big, a lot of brands level brands. Yeah. So what what happened with our with that little budding online company Amazon? <laughs> that little mom and pop. That little mom and shop. pop shop. Um, so Senator Bernie Sanders took a pot shot at him, um, you know, saying that their fulfillment centers are, you know, crappy jobs, essentially. Sweat jobs. Yeah. And so Amazon fired back. And Amazon has taken a lot of barbs from President Trump and others and uh, has not responded to the, any of those yet. This is the first time they've really responded. And so they fired back at Sanders and they started releasing kind of case studies and, and workers that were you know, touting uh, how, how great of a workplace Amazon is. So maybe this is a sign that Amazon is getting a little sharper elbows in the political space. Some union activity at our good friends at Target. Moving along to the traditional retailer, we have a union election scheduled. The UFCW um, has uh, gotten the board, NLRB, to certify an election at a 250 worker store in Huntington Station, New York. If the UFCW were to win, this would be the first unionized location in the Target uh, chain. And so, you know, we keep an eye on these things for that reason. It would be be a big thing if they won their first election. Man, I mean, you exhausted. I even got one more for you. I know. You want I one know. more? I got one more. I'm worn out. Okay. But I'll, I'll, I, will, I will punch it over the finish this line. This one has here. Elon Musk stepping into the... So yet again, we talked about in, in and out. You've got to be careful about you know how you engage in kind of the New York Times test. Elon Musk threw out a tweet um, saying that you know if employees at his Fremont plant were to unionize, then they essentially would not 
have, um, they would no longer be eligible to receive stock options. That was probably not his smartest move. So he's he's kind of saying that like you know the UAW contracts don't allow for workers to have stock options. That he's arguing that's what he was saying, and that is a fact essentially. But the NLRB saw saw the tweet differently. They saw it as a threat, which is a big big no no. They call that unlawful, <laughs> and and so the NLRB has jumped on Musk and. Uh, it looks like it's going to go after him. So yet again, under the header of, you know, you got to be very mindful of how companies engage and talk. And, you know, this is an example where one is really probably going to get his knuckles wrapped pretty, pretty hard. Pretty hard. And so Joe Renzel, as the uh, paramedic, paramedics come in and carry Franklin out of here after that exhausting update. August. Uh, take us out, California, one last time but a big, big issue on data privacy in California this week. So what's, what's, what's happening? Yeah, folks will recall, you know, this is a big issue in the policy space related to data privacy. You had a law passed very quickly back in June, July about uh, consumer data privacy and what consumers can demand of companies that collect their data. Uh, this was going to be a ballot initiative, got, got transitioned very quickly into a law um, signed and sealed by the governor. Now you've got the attorney general's office basically saying, whoa, you know, what, what is our responsibility here? Um, you know, and we're not properly funded and there's a lot of, quote, unworkable obligations in this law. Um, so, you know, I think it just sets the stage for ongoing discussions around, you know, quote unquote, cleanup legislation that might uh, alter what's been passed into law, you know, during the course of this, this final quarter before they come out of session. Um, the, the good news, I think, you know, silver lining for businesses is this is not going to go into effect until 2020. Um, but folks need to pay real close attention. This is a landmark, um, you know, nationwide setting policy that they put in place in California. So however it gets adjusted, you know, folks are going to have to comply here uh, over the next couple of years. Never dull out in the, uh, the People's Republic of California, is it? All right, guys, that's it for the uh, legislative scorecard. I'm hoping next week is a little slower. But, you know, I'm ready to take a nap. Week. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, we'll, uh, we'll do this again next week. It's time for our Paul Revere segment where we look down the road a bit and see what's coming around the corner for our operator friends. Carson, uh, you saw an article this week that uh, caught your eye in Axios regarding spending habits by millennials. Why, why did that catch your eye? Yep, quiz for you, pop quiz for you. When you think of millennials, what, what, what comes to mind? Frivolous spending. There you go. Um, brunch, avocado toast, bean sprouts, that whole kind of thing. Bottomless mimosas. Bottomless mimosas, yeah. Um, the Axios piece was interesting in, in that it took a look at the purchases of millennials and kind of compared it with the uh, spending habits and purchase habits of baby boomers. And uh, at, at this time in their life, uh, baby boomers were a lot more focused on, I think, what we would call kind of the traditional things of, of kind of, the, you know, the, 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 the quest for Americana, you know, things like uh, housing and transportation and food and personal care. And, and, and this piece kind of really examined that it's a little bit different. Um, education healthcare and rent are really the big three when it comes to millennials. And the reason kind of why that's important, I think operators in our audience is, you know, in the competition for dollars, things like food and entertainment are getting lower and lower on the, on this list for millennials. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And as, as we watch so many companies now, you know, that are either on the quick service side, you know, focused on millennials per se and other segments you know, trying to cater more to millennials through delivery and, you know, offsite 
consumption and so forth, that 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 segment of the economy that's such a big part of their future plans, their ability to buy and purchase that product product is shrinking. And so it's it's kind of juxtaposed with the, with the strategy a lot of companies are employing going forward. So it's it's interesting. Uh, one thing that, about that article that you pointed out that I thought was interesting it was that in terms of the quote unquote frivolous, they're spending a lot more on clothes than they used to. A, you know, we have a much more of a fashion conscious society than we used to. But B, the more important thing is due to globalization, those things are per capita getting cheaper by the day. Right. And they're spending on housing, but it's rent. And rent is tied pretty closely in, in some of what they talk about to food and food delivery. So cracking the millennial, millennial code for restaurants is also about cracking the food delivery code. And that's something we've talked about for, for a while. As always, some good food for thought. Thanks, Carson. You got it. Mailbag. So, Carson, uh, while we have you, we had a, uh, a listener email us this week. Um, as they often do, kind of a follow-up question. So we reached into the mailbag and pulled out a question. It was a follow-up to your segment last week about companies doing a lot of these employer-facing um, efforts rather around education and some you know, benefits and so forth. And the question was essentially, you know, how much of this stuff is for real employee engagement and retention and how much is for PR and optics? Right. And I think... The answer, you know, isn't super black and white, but I think the answer is both, right? I mean, it's it's you know, companies have seen that that there's a need for these within their employees, and it just isn't so bad if there's a lot of good PR and a lot of attention around it, right? Yeah, I think I think you know, one answer is that is sort of both, but you know, uh, go back to, to 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 my Walmart days. Walmart made a lot of smart business decisions because it was good for business, but it was also good for public consumption, elected officials, opinion leaders, but it was the business piece that always led. And based on what the Gap's doing, Walmart, other companies that we talked about last week, it's still, I'm biased toward, it's for business because the numbers are, it's always about the numbers at the end of the day. And if it's not good for business, you're not gonna do it. But again, you can do good, you can do good and do well at the same time. There you go. And here, so, here's the most important question: yeah. is, is is our reader going to get a free T-shirt? I mean, we have the the valuable working lunch T-shirt that we always said we wanted to give out to readers. I don't know. We have to uh, have to determine whether this, this question was T-shirt worthy. Or there we not. go. There but, we go. Um, anybody should feel free to uh, email us at info at alignpublicstrategies.com. Ask any question you want. We'll throw it on and, the table for the group. And and maybe just maybe you could be the proud owner of a working lunch T-shirt. We'll have to see. So we're wrapping this up. It's Labor Day weekend. How are we rolling out of here, guys? Well, we're certainly rolling out on smooth roads brought to you by Domino's Pizza. Ooh, nice. Is that a uh, an homage to their pavements for pizza? Pavingforpizza.com. Pavingforpizza.com. Bad roads shouldn't happen to good pizza. Love it. I do like their uh, civic engagement where they can do good things, market their product, sell some pie, make some partnerships with mayors. Here's what I would advise, though. Dump your Domino's stock because one of the cities they chose is New Orleans, and that's there. Not enough pizza in the world to fill those potholes. Indeed. Bankrupt company. See you next week.